Hey everybody, thank you so much for another for joining us for another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. Um, super excited as we are here today with Ashley Early, who has a tremendous background uh, in sales, currently the host of the other side of sales to try and help startups and train sales teams. So I'm going to let her explain a little bit more about her background, uh, but we also need to give a quick shout out to our sponsors of Gong.io and Lead411. Um, please be sure to check them out because without them, we wouldn't be able to do these episodes as often as we can. So thank you. And Ashley, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm also a huge fan of Gong and Lead411. So give them my, uh, my absolute thumbs up as well. Um, so obviously my name is Ashley Early. I've been doing tech sales for the past decade. Um, companies like FireEye, Okta, Mattermark, stuff like that, primarily kind of what would be considered hard tech. Um, earlier this year, I made the switch from moving kind of for working for companies to working for myself. And I founded my own consulting company, which was a great thing to do in January of 2020. Um, so it's been quite the year. It's been an absolute roller coaster, but it's been great to, rather than focusing all my energy on one specific company and moving the needle, it's been a really fun experience to start working with a lot of different companies, seeing a lot of different situations and using my brain in that different way. I'm also the co-host of The Other Side of Sales, as Richard mentioned, which is devoted to creating sales cultures where everybody can thrive. We've got new episodes every Sunday, othersideofsales.com. And make sure that you sign up for our email list because we did the state of sales survey earlier this year. And I literally spent the three hours prior to recording this working on that report. And we've got some big stuff we're going to talk about around demographics, discrimination, harassment, but with a goal of figuring out what reality looks like for the experience of being in sales right now and how to get it from where we are to where we need to be. So that's all. just for a little bit more context, what kind of deals have you done in your, in your sales career? Cycle, just size wise, <laughs> like year long enterprise, more transactional, both. Honestly, you name it, I've done it in some form. So I've done everything from kind of the classic, SaaS enterprise to SaaS run rate to um, my whole early career was actual networking equipment. So my first day in sales, I had to learn how to say 10 gigabit ethernet switches and understand what those were because those were very cutting edge. Um, and now I work with everything from medical people who are selling medical devices to medical billing to, oh goodness, um, worked with a couple clients who are in the shipping and receiving space, who are in freight, who are in you name it, I have touched it in some form in my career and a lot of it in the past three years. So now, you, you said- Hold on, you said, hold on. Would you, no, hold on. Let me ask this question. This is, shush, shush, I'm gonna mute you. So, cause this is always fascinating when we talk to people is if you go way back on your profile, right? You were very active in debate and drama. Oh yeah. And we've only had one or two people who have been down that road but every time we talk to them, they turn into amazing salespeople. Yeah. Um, what is it about debate and drama that you think has, you know, obviously still lives within you and probably used on a daily basis? Oh, I could talk about this for an hour straight, but I'll tell you kind of the same way I sold myself when I first got into sales. So not only do I have debate and drama on my resume, I have uh, dual degrees. So I went to Santa Clara University and if I'm gonna pay that much and take on that much student loan, I'm gonna get two degrees, not two majors, two degrees. And my degrees were in political science and in opera. So when I went into my first interviews with tech companies trying to explain why they should hire this person who is completely not tech literate to sell their very technical product, the way I did that was I said, look, 
You need someone who's not going to get rattled, who knows how to handle rejection and who can just sit down and do the work. What do you think I've been doing for the past 20 years in music? I audition for things and I get rejected because I'm a half inch taller than the male lead. I audition for something and I'm rejected because 80 sort of arbitrary things and you just have to learn to let it roll off you. So anyone who's in any sort of music or theater, projection is part of the game. Like you're just used to it. Debate came into it and the poli sci came into it because you learn how to formulate arguments. You're taught how to fight and not just you're taught how to fight, but you're taught how to deliver those arguments in a way that they get read and they are received positively in the room. So you learn how to read the judge. You argue a case differently if it's a soccer mom sitting in front of you versus another team's coach in a three-piece suit. You learn how to read the room. You learn how to read your opponent, as it were. Um, and I actually specialized in an event called extemporaneous speaking, which was where my job was to, I was given three topics, 30 minutes, and I had these giant, like, three foot by one foot tubs full of newspaper clippings. So I spent about 30 minutes a day for four years straight, reading everything I get my hands on, cutting it up and filing it by category in these tubs. And then once I got those three categories on the day of the event, I had 30 minutes to write a 10 minute speech and then deliver it without notes, including at least anywhere between at the low levels, you have to do at least five sources by the time I was state runner up. I think you had to get 10 to 15 sources. It's like, according to the New York Times article titled XYZ from this date and then give a direct quote in support of your argument. So when it comes to diving in, learning things that are incredibly technical quickly, being able to assimilate, get the jargon down and then regurgitate it in a way that sounds authoritative. I've literally been doing that since I was 15. Wow. And even before that, I was still picking fights with my parents yeah. and making them explain things to me. See why that was so important, Scott? Now you can ask your question. I didn't say it wasn't important, Richard. I, this, I, there is no way in my mind that I could do what Ashley just talked about. No way. Like that gives me so, much, so much anxiety, performance anxiety, stress, whatever, whatever you want to call it. That's, that's incredible for me to think about. And obviously now looking back, like, oh my God, perfect pitch that you delivered to, you know, uh, get hired and all that kind of stuff. Was there any part of you when you were 15 or whatever many years old where you were going through that thinking, wow, I'm really going to be, be able to use this in business or in sales later on or one day in my, in my life? Or was that not a part of your thinking whatsoever? You guys are going to love this. My dad's a sales rep. My dad's a good sales rep. My dad worked for uh, Oracle, DEC, but, Digital. He I'm came from like, high tech. Some of it was bleeding into the conversation at home, I think. It bleeds in, but not as much as you think. And the way it bled in, the message I took, I was, oh Lord, high school, middle school, I was the biggest goody two-shoes. Um, I, I skipped one class in high school, one class, and it was my second to last week. And I told my parents that evening because I felt bad. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And I broke curfew once because my then boyfriend's grandmother had died. So I got home 15 minutes after curfew. Like I was such a good two shoots, it's pathetic. My, but my, my form of, re my rebellion was I did not want to be my parents. I did not want to be my mother. I knew at age eight, I was not going to be a stay at home mom. I had this discussion with my husband on like our second date. Like if you want to stay at home mom, this is not going to be me. Like just no. And 
my dad was a salesman. That meant we moved a ton and those moves sucked. A lot of those were really hard. And especially in my early years, um, and I've actually met a few other people whose parents were salespeople and we call it their absent but present thing where he was there for every birthday, every soccer game, but he missed the skin knees. He missed helping on a lot of homework, stuff like that. So I was very adamant. I think my dad in the background was sitting, was in his head going, she's gonna be in sales. She's got, she's got it. But in my head, I was like, no, I'm not gonna do business. I'm gonna do whatever. When I came into college, I mean, you guys remember, but some of the kids might not. I was obsessed with the show West Wing. I really wanted to be CJ Craig. I thought my mission in life was going to be to draw attention to these causes that everyone ignored. Then I realized so they made no money. You know, we're, we're actually going through and watching them all over right now. We've even got our 12 year olds thinking about starting to watch them. And I just finished yesterday, Rob Lowe's first book, um, stories. I only tell my friends, which is hilarious. And he talks very specifically about that whole part of that process. I mean, he also goes into the outsiders and, how that all worked out, but it's, I'm a big fan. So oh, yeah. Love it. And you heard they're doing a fundraiser. They're going to do, they're going to redo one of the, one of my favorite episodes live, which I'm super yeah. excited about. But um, yeah. I want to, I want to go back to what you said at the intro about branching off and going out on your own. And the, the way you said it, you know, 2020, January, 2020, what a great time to go into business for yourself. I heard like a little bit of pain in there a oh, little yeah. bit of, a little bit of sarcasm so if you're comfortable talking about it what what has that been like is it is was that like has it been really hard because of because of that has it been better than you expected because of that and i, I asked because i started basically three months before you that, that's it like i only went fully on my own in october of last year so i'm curious what what it's been like for you it's it's interesting because 2020 for me has been the year of doing all the things I said I would never do. You know, I said, I never wanted to be my own boss, too much trouble, too much risk. I'm sole income in my family, not interested. I never want to live in the burbs. I, I need to be in a city. I need to be around people. I will never work remote. I love being in the office too much. I will never buy a pickup truck because I hate people who drive pickup trucks. <laughs> I have done all these things in 2020. Um, but what really happened was, uh, brutal honesty, I got laid off on December 20th, unexpectedly. And while I may disagree with the reasons it happened, and I took the first part of January, and after that was my fourth unexpected termination in a row, I was, I, I could not go work for anybody else again. I just couldn't. It was like, I, I am so sick of my life being dictated by other people's businesses and their needs versus my own needs. Like I can't, I can't do it emotionally anymore. At the same time, I was talking with one of my mentors who said, Hey, you know, we've been joking about me hiring you. I'd really like to do that. But Q1 is our slowest quarter. So let's talk in Q2. So I started my company with the intent of only running it for two to three months. So started in January, got some, got some contracts pretty quickly. Um, was smart enough and anybody out there who's listening, who is starting their own consultancy in 2020, do not give your clients uh, buyouts or cancellation options. Make it non-cancelable. The only way someone gets out of a contract with me is if I get sick. That's it. Um, that saved 
that saved my bacon in so many ways because I was able to get enough contracts in place before COVID really hit that I didn't really feel the pain of COVID until July. Mm. So I got very lucky in that sense. But at the same time, what's made it kind of a painful journey is I very much fell into this. I was not intending to start my own firm and all this stuff. So I've like over the summer taken some time and I'm just now building out my ICP. I'm just now going out with my personas. I'm building out my product packages because I kind of stumbled into it. So now I'm going back and doing all that work. I in theory should have done in January, but in January it was about, okay, I got to stay afloat. So that's been really interesting, but it's, it's at the same time been so fulfilling, so much more fulfilling than I thought it would be. And it's helping me realize that what I love doing is problem solving. I love being that translator between let's take this theory, let's take this vision that you've got and figure out how to actually make that happen where the rubber meets the road. So like I work with a lot of people who, you know, come in and they're saying, Oh, I'm a huge fan of Keenan and gap selling. I'm a huge fan of addicted to the process. I'm a huge fan of all these other great books. And they're like, okay, so how do we apply this to our system? Okay let's actually figure out what parts of that work. And I, I still get a lot of people who will talk about like, um, they want to do the waterfall, they want to do a lot of these great books, but they're 10, 15 years old and they're written for SaaS companies and they're med tech or their, you know, operations and stuff like that. It's like that won't work the way you think it will. And here's why. And helping them figure out what about it they liked and then how to apply it is so much fun and I don't have to deal with HR or accounting, which is fantastic. So I don't have to pick those fights anymore. You're paid um, to be the expert. That's I always know. the fun part, right? It is fun. Um, and the other thing it's, it's freed me up to do is to really start speaking my mind a bit more. Where before it was like, I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to, I don't want to upset the apple cart. I don't want to call out these things. And I'm nowhere near as outspoken as as my podcast co-host Casey is, I've been who saying, just has I, I no do. filter. <laughs> if I ever went back into sales, I just, I, I mean, I can't do anything but crush it because I'm unafraid. I'm like, all right, yeah. you don't want to do it? That's fine. I'm going to the next one. You know, like, it's okay. Yeah. So, um, what, you know, what was, I guess the question is, was what was one of your bigger oh shit moments during this COVID thing, right? Like July hit and what was it? And then how did you power through it? I'm more interested in like, cause we all face our challenges, right? This happens whether you're in sales and you hit goal or you don't hit goal and those things. How did you power through it? What did you find in you to do that? Uh, I'm still in it. I'm still kind of in the, Oh shit. The difference is I've got a plan that I didn't have two months ago, but where it really hit was this combination of three of my bigger contracts ending. I knew they were ending combined with getting my first tax bill from uncle Sam. Um, and seeing that big chunk of change that I knew I was going to have to pay, but then seeing it be about 15, 20% higher than I expected. Just that just hurts in a deep way. There's something just really painful about uh, that check. And like, I, I see it. I'm putting it in the mailbox. I know what really sucked was, I was due a pretty sizable refund from 2019 and that refund, which I was going to put on like my credit cards and stuff like that, just got applied to my tax debt. 
So even that 10 to 15% more was worse because my, I had a couple thousand from 2019 brought over on top of it. So again, pro tip, if you're doing consulting, hire an accountant, don't try and figure it out yourself. I spent about probably about three days straight equivalent in terms of time trying to decipher these tax forms versus employed, self-employed, all the taxes and how that all worked. At the same time I was doing that, I was trying to figure out um, the Paycheck Protection Program because thank God I started in January, which was before the Feb 15th deadline and I had income in January and February. Yep. So I, Scott, I tried to get Scott to fill one out and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be bothered. It, right. it was a nightmare. I ended up having, no joke, I ended up going to my governor, my congressman, and both of my senators. And finally an aide from one of the senators got me in touch with the local Better Business Bureau, no, got me in, luck, in touch with the local SBA guy in my area who got me in touch with this woman named Sue Malone out of Oakland, California, who is just, she helped write this legislation. And she's the number one lender to women and minorities in the whole US for getting them funding for startup businesses. She's absolutely amazing. And when I described, because I got caught in this weird loophole where I am my only employee and I don't have any tax data from last year because I didn't exist last year. So according to all the government rules, I qualify. According to all the banks that actually had to give me money, they, weren't, they refused to process my application. So I was stuck in this limbo for like two and a half months where Sue and I were just banging on people's doors and it eventually got to the point where they're like, just fill out this form and we know it's not binding in any way. And if you sent this to the IRS, the IRS would be telling you, why are you sending me this? But at least then we have it and then we'll give you the money. So. And Scott, just so you know, for someone like you or me, it was maybe a 30 minute process. So don't think like, oh, you know, hey. No, I just, I got caught in a nasty little loophole. Um, Richard. Things that should be 30 minutes for normal people would take me weeks on end. So I, I just couldn't, couldn't handle it, couldn't be bothered with it. I want to ask Ashley about the migration from San Francisco and the West Coast uh, over to Research Triangle, Raleigh, Durham area. The reason this is on my mind is because I've, in the last couple of days, had multiple conversations with with people about the great exodus, if you will, from New York it's and, Chicago and LA and San Francisco and all this. Um, and yes, the situation is different now. Everybody's working remotely and all that kind of stuff. But some of us have been through this before. And I'm talking about myself and about Ashley, right? So I want to know what, what has been kind of the upside for you in, in leaving the Bay Area and what's been some of the downside and challenges with it? Um, yeah, so interesting story. I, my husband and I, I went to school in the Bay Area. So that's where I met my husband. I'm not from there originally, I'm originally from Washington State. So I had to go to college out of state, ended up at SCU, met my husband, fell into working in the Bay Area because I graduated at the height of the recession in 2009. So it was, I just needed to take a job um, and fell into sales after a couple of years of false starts with other things. But in, let's see, I left the Bay Area in 2011 for a year. I moved up to Seattle, got sucked back to the Bay Area in 2012. I left the Bay Area in 2014. I got sucked back to the Bay Area in 2015. <laughs> There's been multiple um, great migrations. We've been trying to break out for a long time because it, 
it also because the fact that, like I said, I am sole income. It is impossible to get ahead on one income, no matter, unless you're really close to like a 150, 200K and you're okay living in tiny old apartments with very little money for savings and all these other things. Um, we didn't have family locally. We couldn't live with people and just the light, we couldn't live the lifestyle we wanted to live. We just couldn't. Um, and so we always knew we had to get out. And there were several points where we were pulling our hair out going, oh my God, we're going to go bankrupt, even though Ashley's making all this great money. Um, part of that's our own financial learning some lessons the hard way. Part of it's just the way that area is built and New York's just the same. So when I took the job at Okta in 2016, um, I made a promise to my husband that that would be my last job in the Bay Area. So when it came time to leave Okta, it, I insisted on either finding a job that wasn't the East Coast or a job that could be done remote and it turned into a job that could be done remote. So we moved to DC for a year because we're both political and museum junkies. So that's Mecca here in the States. Um, and we used our time there to explore the rest of the East Coast. Um, my whole life, people have thought I was from the East Coast. I get at least two people a year who think I'm from Boston, which tells me they've never been to Boston because I don't know what in my voice says that. Um, but now that I'm out here, I, we settled on Raleigh. We looked at Austin, Atlanta, Baltimore, Philly, and um, uh, Providence, Rhode Island. So why Raleigh? Honestly, a couple different things. One, it needed to be a tech hub because just for work, I, needed, I knew I needed a backup plan. So I needed a tech hub. Cost of living, needed to be able to, we really wanted to buy a house. So we bought a house. But the big thing that sold us on it was people are just nice. They're just nice and they're delightful. And it's not like a kind of that slightly derisive Southern charm that you can get sometimes in some places where it's like, you know, the bless your heart. That's the, Georgia. Like that. That's the Georgia in you. Yeah, Rich, it's, right there. I mean, I, I grew up, my best friend for most of elementary school was from Athens, Georgia. So I'm not going to do it, but I can lapse into a really good Georgia accent when I want to, or you put a few gins in me. I can do it all. It's super easy to talk Southern. I can talk SEC football. I'm really disappointed the dogs ain't playing this year. You know, I, I'll, so, all I know about mm -hmm. college football is, is Bama and Roll Tide, and that's about it. When, I'm, when I'm, we a, were I'm a hockey up, it was girl. Called so. parole tide. We called it Parole Tide because we all went to jail <laughs> back when I was growing up. Ugh, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. But, so um, like, how long have you been there? So how long have you been in Raleigh? We moved here in March of 2019, so we've been here just over a year. But do, it you was, like, do you feel like the opportunities have been – harder to come by at all? Is there anything that you've, you've lost, you feel like? Yeah, so it's a couple things here. This is kind of interesting where COVID in a lot of ways has in that sense been a, actually quite a blessing because it forced everybody online. And so now I'm working from home, but now I'm connecting with hundreds of other people who are also working from home. And now I'm able to scratch that social itch that pre-COVID I was struggling to scratch. I was, I was feeling alone. I was feeling isolated. I was feeling trapped in my office that is bigger than the apartment I lived in when we got married. Um, you know, it, it was an adjustment. I mean, we got dogs, you know, so like I've just had, I became the crazy dog lady. Um, and 
it, it was definitely an adjustment. So COVID has been a blessing in that way. Cause now I have a online social network that I didn't have before. Um, and I didn't prioritize it early enough. So it was interesting in DC. And when we first moved here, I didn't realize how desperate I was for that kind of companionship. So I ended up kind of latching onto certain things. And like, I got involved in some like neighborhood politics, which is not something I recommend. Um, it, it, I, I swear there are, I, I love my neighborhood because it's all a bunch of people from new England and Philly and, you know, Pennsylvania and stuff like that. But it's also a brand new neighborhood and the amount of discussion about the nails that contractors are leaving on the road and the punctured tires makes me want to punch some people because oh, yeah. it's like, it's new construction. You knew this was going to happen. Why are we spending all of our time on the Facebook page bitching about it? Yeah. We have the same thing with next door where, where someone goes out and complains that someone put the dog's poop bag in their trash can that was on the street. You know, I, I got sucked. I got sucked into a fight between my neighbor who has a dog who was attacked by another woman in the neighborhood's dog at the dog park. And without realizing it, I somehow sided with my neighbor over this other woman who I didn't know. And it turned into this weird thing. And I was just like, I'm not playing. I'm, I do not have time for this. This is not desperate housewives. I'm not interested. Um, but it, it took me a little bit to realize, actually it took, it took one of the women who I was hanging out with, um, making a comment, betraying my political biases here, making a comment that compared to tearing down Confederate statues to, well, if you're going to do that, we should just close Dachau because it's the same thing. And I was like, okay, we're not yeah. going to hang out mm -hmm. anymore yeah, without telling you, you that I'm going to do that. So um, that's... It, but it, it, that, that was the biggest thing here. And then the other side of it's just, it takes, I vastly underestimated the time and the effort to make friends as an adult. You know, I've always been really social. My friends were always in the office with me. It was you, my coworkers. You mean, you mean like physical in-person kind of friends, right? Yeah. You're, you're building this like online network and community and friends and, and everything like that. But you're talking about yeah. The, the, the people like, for example, um, uh, my husband makes custom furniture and he cut his leg pretty badly last summer and we had to take him to the ER. He's fine. But like, who am I going to call to take my dogs out? So they're not stuck in their crates for two days. Like the stuff like that. Cause we don't have family here. Nothing like that. But the other side of this too, that's come out of this is this realization that and the acceptance that it's okay that most of my friends are work friends. I felt, I thought that was wrong. I thought that was not how it should be. I felt like I should have, you know, you should have a life outside of work. And what I've kind of come to realize is, yeah, you do. But you can also have a huge support network of people that you share this common experience with. And there's nothing wrong with that being the, majority of your social support and the moment i stopped shaming myself for that unintentionally in my head it was like oh okay cool great i think that's a really important point that you made yeah. you know I, I i really do i i for oh, almost 20 years now i guess like the majority of my my adult friends have been people that i've interacted with through work and in work situations and environments 
And I, I don't try to replicate these friendships that I had like in college or in high school. Yeah. And like, I'm not gonna, I just have sort of decided like, I'm not gonna have that situation anymore and that's okay. And this new way that I'm making friendships and having relationships is also okay. So I'm not gonna beat myself up, you know, about that. So that, that's a really good, uh, really good call out. What, what do you, I wanna change gears like massively. All right. We've been talking about building your, your business, but you spent a lot of time in the SDR world as an SDR manager, right? What are you seeing now that's different from when you were in that particular role? Is there something that you're able to look back on now and be like, oh shit, I can't believe that I did that or taught that. That would never work now. Is, is, has, it, has, this, has the sea change been stark enough to, to compare and contrast those, those two things? Honestly, not a ton because like I, I, I always kind of laughed a little bit when people start talking about ABM, ABS, account-based sales, about account-based marketing. I'm like, uh, we've been doing that for 30 years. We just didn't call it that. And maybe we didn't do it with the tools that we have now to make us do it a lot more intentionally and with a lot more accuracy. Um, it, kind of everything old is new again. It's, it's like music. It's really hard to find something that is truly original. It's all about responding to the times and going back to basics and figuring out what permutation of these basic concepts applies to the situation, to the buyer, to the seller. So in that sense, I look back at like what I was doing when I was a baby SDR manager, I had Salesforce. That was the only tool we had, you know? So I look back and I think, oh my gosh, that wouldn't fly anymore. That's what I think about. So we had no tools. So that's one. Now that's table stakes. You have to have, a couple different things going on. I mean, we had, gosh, we had, to, we had, to, we had ranking and discover org back when those were things. Now it's all zoom info, but um, it's, it's the preponderance of tools and stuff like that. And actually it's funny because the rise of those tools is one of the things I attribute to, I attribute my own success to. Um, as an SDR, I got really good at manipulating the CRM. I went through the whole process of becoming a Salesforce and a Marketo admin. And then at the last minute, my employer decided not to pay for the tests because startup logic. So I was very systems and tools savvy before I was an SDR manager. So when I became one, I just started automating everything in ways that when sales loft and outreach came on the market, I was like, oh God, that'd be so nice. <laughs> that'd be so much easier than what I'm doing with triggers and Salesforce and trying to teach myself Apex code. Um, but now I feel like we're, I feel like it's a pendulum in terms of the kind of tools and the complexity, especially of SDR tool stacks, where I think we're going to see over time, we keep swinging between having a bunch of different best in class tools and having single platforms that do everything. Yeah. And we've very much been in the, I want a bunch of tools, best in class. I mean, when I was at Okta, I think we had in the sales, I'm not gonna include MarkTech, but I think we had eight to 10 tools that our SDRs had access to at any given time. That's it was a, nuts. That, that's a lot. Yeah. It was a ton. And I went in there and I'm trying to, I'm trying to train and I'm like, they don't need half of these. Well, they also, oh, they're paying for them. They knew how to use three or four of them really. Yeah. So it, we did some fun discussions on overhauling and contracts and stuff like that. But then I'm seeing exactly. I'm seeing us swinging back towards consolidation. Like you've got Marketo is now doing like Marketo sales connect and you've got discover org or zoom info which now has, Zoom Info now has a dialer and sequencer tool that they are rolling out, which I just found out about. 
So I think we're going to start seeing that consolidation. And then I think probably about 10 years, we'll start going back to best in breed and go back and forth on that thing. The only thing I, that makes me feel really smart is I have several emails and several people. I predicted Sendoso back yeah. in like 2013 because in wow. 2013, I, because That's like, two, yeah, because I was like, I'm talking to CISOs at Fortune 500 banks. They're getting a million calls. They're getting a million emails, but I send them a nice little handwritten letter or a pen, or we did this, we did this promo full credit to Brent Ramey, who was a CMO of FireEye at the time. He did this great promo where we would send a nice boxed iPad. This is back when iPads were brand new. iPad uh, case, FireEye branded to the top 100 C, uh, CISOs in the country. And then as SDRs, we were following up saying, hey, did you get the iPad, the iPad case? You did? Okay. Let us know when we can come by and we'll bring you the iPad. It had like a 90% retention rate. And I think half of them ended up being donated to charity or given to their receptionist. But the fact they got something and it was physical and it was present, I was like, why aren't we doing this all the time? And they're like, oh, it's expensive. I'm like, fine. So we'll just send them like a pound of coffee or something. Yeah. Like- it doesn't matter what the thing, I can't even tell sits you. sits on their desk. I, I have stuff from, I have stuff that vendors have sent me. I have, I, mean, I actually have a Sendoso dog toys and stuff. Like I have stuff from vendors because I, I feel guilty throwing it away. Even though I haven't bought their stuff in five years. You know, you could try to go my route here, which is like, I talk about my affection for tequila so often that people just send me bottles of booze. I, I'm waiting for gin. Gin is, I, I am a passionate gin lover. If you're listening, Ashley likes gin. So Ash responds very well to gin, and she lives in a state where it's really hard to find good gin. There you go. See, so Help. stop. stop <laughs> what is good gin? What is your, your go-to gin since we're talking uh, about it? Okay, do you want my daily gin or the gin I wish I could get but I can't find? That one. Both. Okay, daily gin. Right now, I'm really enjoying it. I'll take between Sipsmith and uh, a gin called Malfi which is a lemon forward gin. So in summer, you dunk a little bit of that in some lemonade. That is the perfect like deep summer drink. Um, Sip Smith's just a classic gin tonic, great for martinis, great for anything else like that. Um, the stuff I love, but I can't get there is this great little, they just opened up an actual distiller, but they used to do this out of their garage in, I believe it's in Hammersmith in London. And it's called a sacred. And they make a pink grapefruit and a cardamom gin that are just amazing. And there was a place I could get them in San Francisco. Um, and every time they had it in stock, I'd go and buy like five, six bottles. And I am down to my last like two, like drinks of cardamom. Yeah, see, and, so this is, my, yeah. this is my advice to you. It's just like, keep talking about that stuff. And then people, as they prospect you or thank you or whatever, you'll start receiving those as gifts. And then you don't pile up all this swag that you feel guilty you know, to hang on to forever. Instead, you just be like, I'm just going to drink this and enjoy it. Yes. And throw it away. Yeah. I, yeah. Gin. Um, if I'll say is if you really want to get my attention, send um, really good scotch because I do like scotch, but my husband likes it more. And just like with any great power couple, you want to get to me, you make my husband happy. I will love you forever. Like it's one thing to make me happy. It's another thing to, have him now lobbying for you to me because you sent him this really good scotch. Yeah, that's right. I want to I shift us just a, a couple, because we got a couple more minutes, but I want to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, and, and I hope it's okay to bring this up, but 
what is it like being a woman in sales, right? And we talk about it and we hear about it on a regular basis. I'm also very interested in hearing, and it's even a businesswoman. I wouldn't even just say it's 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 a business person, but particularly as you move back to a to a to a Raleigh, to a you know very different kind of perspective. And if you're open to sharing that, I'd I'd love to explore into that if you're comfortable with it. Absolutely. Um, I have to start out by saying one, I'm a white woman. Two, I'm a reasonably good looking white woman. So that makes things a hell of a lot easier um, than a lot of other people that I have worked with. I also have the benefit of I've been married the entire time I've been in sales. I met my husband when I was 19. Um, I'm still shocked that worked, um, but I just happened to meet my soulmate young. So I've always been very open and I've led with the fact of working into conversations that I married because I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a self-defense tactic. So I've only had two or three situations where I was the direct recipient of very sexist or discriminatory behavior. And I was never, I never felt, I only had one instance where I felt unsafe. And in that instance, it was at a party and I was talking with a guy, a, a veteran sales enablement leader at a great company. And I'd met him a couple times before. I just have to assume he'd had one too many. And all of a sudden he's talking about the importance of variety in the bedroom and swinging. And he starts telling me how beautiful his wife is. And I can just tell where this conversation's going. And I start trying to extricate myself and he keeps going. So finally I just straight up lied and said, Oh, I see my boss waving at me. And I just ran and full credit. I went to my boss and said, I don't feel safe. This guy's talking about stuff. I don't like, I need you to get me out of it. He no questions asked, turned and walked. He flagged another one of my colleagues who was a larger man said, go hang with Ashley. Don't leave her side the rest of the night. No big deal. So, and that was actually at my fourth day at that company. So that was a very empowering thing for me that I spoke up. I said, I'm not comfortable. And I was given all the support I could have asked for. Um, that's the worst thing that's happened to me. Do you, what's, you what's scary. Sure. I'll say, yeah. here's the, here's the thing that's scary. That's the worst thing that's happened to me. I cannot tell you how many of my close friends have had significantly scarier things happen to them. I cannot tell you how many, I've got at least four or five stories of women who have been sexually harassed, have been grabbed, have been touched, have been propositioned via text, who did not report it because they were scared for their jobs. And that's what breaks my heart. So it's, I'm very, very, very lucky given these facts of my life. That means that I haven't had to deal with as much of it, but it's I, anytime I try to tell people what the experience is like, or I try to describe it. It's, I always use the analogy of walking down a dark street at night. A guy walking down a dark street at night might feel a little bit unsafe. A woman walking down a dark street at night has her keys out of her purse in between her two fingers is constantly walk, looking for exit strategies, has her phone on whatever ask, ask the women in your life. They have plans for when they're in those situations. It's kind of the same way in sales. I have a plan for how much I'm going to drink if I'm going to a work event. So I don't get in trouble. I had someone tell me very early on the trick of go up to the bar and order a club soda with lime. Cause then you can say it's vodka. You can say it's gin and it looks like you're drinking, but you're not. And then it's really easy to not get pressured into drinking too much, which is unsafe. 
um, you know, things like that. We just have these plans. We know we avoid being in situations where we're going to be alone with people who we have weird vibes about. Um, so let me, let me ask you this. Um, and it, I love that you feel empowered to speak your mind, right? Like, and that, that is a huge piece of this, but to your point, the easier said than done. Yeah. What, you know, what advice do you try to give women? I think you've sort of said some things based on the experience yeah. you have about having a plan, but are there, you know, what, what are some other things? Cause as a guy, like I can sort of give out some advice, but it's, I'm a guy, like it's not, I can empathize, but I can't sympathize cause I've never been through it. Right? No, and I, I appreciate that. I think two big things that come up for me. Um, and especially even doing the work I'm doing with the state of sales survey and looking at these analytics and this and the stats on this, which are both very encouraging and utterly disheartening at the same time. Um, in the sense that some of them are near, not nearly as bad as I thought they would be, which is great, but the fact they're still where they are sucks. Um, and that's the same across gender, race, sexual identity, pretty much everything across the board is kind of in that category. The advice I have for women in sales is two things, two big things. One, when it comes to picking where you're going to work and who you're going to work for, especially pay attention to where you're holding your tension in your body when you're in the office and when you're having the interviews, if your body is holding tension somewhere, it is sensing something about the situation that your brain is not actively aware of. And that could be something as innocuous as, I just don't trust this guy from like a, to be a good leader situation to this. I'll be honest, the most sexist thing that's ever happened to me was woman on woman um, to this person is not going to have my best interest at hearts to this person is going to try to proposition me. Pay attention to that stuff in your body. And especially if you're early in your career, you don't know what to look for. That's the hardest thing. You don't a lot. I can look back and tell you 10 more examples of, mildly sexist behavior that I did not realize was sexist behavior in the moment because I just gave everyone the benefit of the doubt. But I knew, ooh, that just kind of made my shoulders go a little bit. So that's one, pay attention to your body and where you're holding tension and stuff like that. That will tell you a lot about what's safe and what's not. Two, the idea that if you report sexual harassment or discrimination to HR is, gonna, is going to hurt your career is a myth and it's bullshit and we need to start calling it out because it is keeping people silent. It is keeping people scared and it does nothing but help the perpetrators. Now that's no guarantee that it's going to be dealt with properly. That's no guarantee that you're not going to have repercussions, but the idea that it would ruin your career, that it would mean you can't have other jobs in sales is absolutely ridiculous. And the fact of the matter is there are a ton of legal protections and these are not hard legal protections to enforce any lawyer worth their grain of salt would jump on any sort of uh, retaliatory action because it's a huge payday for them with virtually no work. This person filed a complaint within six months, they were fired. I don't care what excuse they gave for you getting fired or whatever, or if they gave you a bad reference or anything like that, basically in a weird way, if this sadly terribly happens to you in a weird way, you've got to get out of jail free card from that company. They can't touch you. And if they do, you should get a pretty good amount of money out of it. And if any other companies find out about it, then you get even more money from them. So we can't just like with not to compare, but to draw some correlation with 
systemic racism and unconscious bias that we're dealing with with Black Lives Matter. We have to start calling this stuff out, like this idea that if you, if you report this, you will be punished. If you report this, your job's at risk. If you report this, no one's going to do anything. No one cares. That's not true. And if that does happen, there are a million other companies. If you're in this situation, Jesus Christ, reach out to me. I can tell you 50 other companies that will hire you in a heartbeat and treat you the way you're supposed to be treated. And that goes for men, women, whatever you're facing. There is no reason to stay in a job as a sales pro. There is always a need for good sales reps if you're facing this sort of behavior. So totally sorry, agree. Thank little, you. get off my little soapbox there. For no, me. that's good. That's, that's what people need to hear. And I, I appreciate you being so uh, open and direct with your experiences and giving some advice to people and um, completely agree with everything you said. Uh, and now you, when is this report coming out? Cause you sort of alluded to this earlier. When is the report and where do they, where do people go to sign up for it? Yes. So go to othersideofsales.com, set up for our email list, make sure you're following other side of sales as well as Casey or myself on LinkedIn. We will be plastering this stuff all over everything. Um, we're hoping within two weeks, we're hoping by early October. Great. Um, so pretty quick here. So the, um, the full analysis is going to be a, honestly, it's going to be like a 30 page document. So that's going to be for our sponsors and probably sure. for purchase, but then there's going to be, we're going to do like a 10, 20 page slideshow. That'll be for everybody kind of with the big high points. What aside from sort of this discrimination, men, women, that kind of stuff, traditional state of sales also, or is it more around the social issues that are occurring you're seeing these days? There were kind of two, we had, the goals were twofold. One was to get good demographic information about sales reps, gender, ethnicity, income, not income level, but maybe education level, um, education level of their parents, which is a great indicator of how much money they grew up with. Um, just where do we come from and what do we look like? Then at the same time, then diving into this um, discrimination harassment angle, is it happening? If it's happening, how often is it happening and who's it happening to? because we can't fix any of this stuff. Like we can't fix diversity and inclusion. We can't fix diversity on teams until we know where we are. We can't fix it unless we agree on reality. You know, it's like trying to build a railroad track between you know, the East Coast and the West Coast. You can't build the railroad track until you at least agree on the right path. Until you at least agree with where, where it needs to start and where it needs to finish. This is us identifying a starting point. Then we'll we, we're not going into here's how to fix it. We're just going with here's reality as it is right now in this survey. So it's not super scientifically accurate, but we've got a really good sample size. We had over 500 people take this. So you look at that compared to other studies and surveys and stuff that are done on sales. That's actually a really good sample size. That is pretty good. And then the other side is, and this is where honestly, Casey and I make a really great team. I'm the data nerd of the two of us. I'm taking point on running this report and writing, doing all the tables. And I'm just happy as a client doing this for short periods of time. This is why I'm not in sales ops. Bless all the sales ops people. I can do this for like a week at a time and then I want to murder someone. But um, Casey made the really valid point, which was we we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we convince people or help really illustrate what the problem is if there is a problem? I'm data, show me the data, show me the data. Casey is tell me the stories. I want to see all, I want to hear, I want to read, I want to learn everything straight from the horse's mouth. So the other side of this is we've collected hundreds of stories of people you're experiencing or witnessing or people saying it's not happening. Um, and so we're going to be doing a lot of content over the next six months around those. We're hoping to get some of them recorded. 
with the voices anonymized, we're hoping to put a lot of it into, we're still trying to figure out exactly what all we're going to do with it because there's so much we're not quite sure, but it's kind of trying to make sure we're hitting this from two different angles. So if you're a data person, here's the data to, to show you where we are. If you're somebody who can dismiss the data and blow it off or whatever, fine, read these 15 stories and then tell me how you feel about this. It's not about convincing people who say there's not a problem because I'm not going to be able to convince them. It's about bringing everyone together who agrees, hey, we need to fix this and agree on a starting point. And then once we've got that, then we can start having those bigger discussions around, okay, so what are we going to do about it? That's great. And a really cool and unique and fresh <laughs> and ambitious uh, project that the two of you took on. That's really awesome. Yeah. So I got to, and just because I'm mentioning it, I have to shout out to our sponsors, Salesloft, Outreach, and VanillaSoft, or not Outreach, sorry, Salesloft, Bravado, and VanillaSoft um, for supporting this. Um, and we are going to be doing another state of sales survey in 2021. So if anyone listening is interested in getting involved with anything other side of sales or the 2021 state of sales survey, you can always find us on LinkedIn or at othersideofsales.com. Cool. Because I'm in sales, I have to plug. Yeah, no, we get it. We get it. So uh, in the meantime, we do have to sort of go out and plug our, our own sponsors as well. Gone and 411. Um, thank you for, for mentioning those. I know all those companies that you mentioned and they are uh, thought leaders in all these spaces in terms of being, I hate to say the word progressive, right? Like it shouldn't be progressive. It should just yeah. be life. But uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And Ashley, by all means, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Of course, yeah, this has been fun.